0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. So excited to welcome Greta Gerwig back to the show. This is her, uh, checking my watch, third time on Bullseye, uh, a rare honor. Uh, probably the greatest honor in all of show business. Uh, Greta is, of course, an actor. She starred in dozens of films, films like Francis Ha and 20th Century Women. Uh, she also had a regular part on the adult swim show China, Illinois. In 2017, she wrote and directed the movie Lady Bird. It's one of my favorites of maybe my favorite movie of the past decade. Uh, a quiet movie about growth and change told from the perspective of a high school senior living in Sacramento. And her follow-up is Little Women. Little Women, also (laughs) one of my favorite movies of the past decade or so. Uh, I think my favorite movie of the year. It's a retelling of the classic Louisa May Alcott book, beautifully shot and perfectly cast and just incredibly alive. The plot revolves around the March family and their four daughters. It's set in the mid-1800s. The closest thing the movie has to a protagonist is Jo, one of the sisters. She's an aspiring writer. She's coming of age in Massachusetts. And in later scenes in the film, she is in New York shopping her first manuscript. Let's listen to a scene from the movie with Amy, the youngest March sister, played by Florence Pugh. So Amy is engaged to a rich guy. She doesn't really love him. And Laurie, who's played by Timothy Chalamet is trying to convince her not to get married.
0: I've always known
1: I would marry Rich. Why should I be ashamed of that? There's nothing to be ashamed of as long as you love him. Well, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Well, I'm not a poet. I'm just a woman. And as a woman there's no way for me to make my own money. Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. Welcome back to Bullseye, Greta. It's nice to see you.
0: Nice to see you too. And
1: congratulations on this movie, which is really great. Thank you. I had to contain my laughter at that quick, maybe the poets would disagree. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. think in, in your two films, you've really uh, dug Timothy Chalamet <laughs> a hole for insufferableness. <laughs> But I mean, yeah. he's he's such a charmer. He I pulls know. it off.
0: I know. He's so game to say whatever. I, I mean, he really does say every single line I give him to say, <laughs> and he says it with um, the utmost sincerity. I, I did make him say that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> his uh, his character in your first film was like a uh, was like a pretentious high school boyfriend. Yes, and I was shocked to read today, and I wish I had read it before when we talked about that movie, but I was shocked to read today that on set you were accused of being more like him than Cersei Ronan's character.
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean, it's funny just in terms of where authors hide themselves, which I definitely was playing with a lot in Little Women and looking at where Louisa May Alcott is in different characters. But in any case... I have some Kyle like tendencies, I'd say. His whole paranoia about the government listening and and we bought tracking devices and put them on ourselves. That's all me. That's all my paranoia is. And every time I gave Tim I gave Timothy a bunch of reading material for that character, and he said, Why is it all underlined? And well, who made all these notes? And I was like, Oh, it's that's me. I'm I'm worried about this. So um yeah, it it was a way for me to articulate some of my own anxieties in a character that no one would rightfully think belonged to me. And yeah, and I do think for me, when I looked at Little Women, it, Louisa really breaks herself into a lot of different characters, including their father, uh, who she has him go to war. But in fact, it was her who went to war as a civil war nurse. It, it's just I, I always like that thing of, of authors hiding themselves. I think it's interesting.
1: Well, I mean, one of the things about Little Women as a book, but especially as a film, and your film as well, is it's like, you know, it comes from a time when novels were still figuring out what novels were. Mm -hmm. And so it has that quality of blurred lines between what is memoirish and what is real. And then besides that, it is... You know, you've filmed it as a story that is essentially about the writing of the book Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, you're putting all that on film. Yes. (laughs) Like I was I was I was struck as I was watching the movie how important the object of the book is in the movie. In more than just the traditional, like, we're telling a story, here's a book opening and a page turning, like in Winnie the Pooh or whatever.
0: Or in Princess Bride. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, no shade. (laughs) Those movies rule. Yeah. But how did you start thinking about, like, the relationship between uh, real life, the novel, the story you wanted to tell, and the object?
0: First of all, I I can say... I am shocked that this movie exists in the form that it does. It was, as a piece of writing and then as a piece of filmmaking, as an undertaking, incredibly complex and not at all a straight-down-the-middle pitch that you might necessarily think that this would be. And I, I wrote this script that was kind of collapsed the space between Louisa May Alcott and Joe March, but then also was playing with this idea of it's both past and present. Then there's this sheen of, is that past or is it fiction? And then there's another layer of fiction that gets added. But I felt like that was in some ways the only way I could adequately address what I found to be... Narratively reflexive, anyway, about the book, that there was a kind of meta ness to the book in any version. I mean, I grew up reading the book and I loved the book, and I loved Joe March, and Joe March was the reason I wanted to be a writer. I thought I could be a writer, but I had completely blocked out the part of the book where she stops writing. And in the book, she stops writing at the end. She says she stops up her inkstand and becomes a wife and mother and opens a school. And uh, I didn't internalize that because the very object you're holding, the book, seems to be contrary to that narrative. You're holding something, someone wrote it, and you kind of make the leap of it was Joe. Even though you know Joe's not real, but as a kid, that kind of fiction and reality is a little fuzzy anyway. And then when I read it as an adult, and then I started researching Louisa May Alcott and and It felt so modern and pressing. And then there's all these ways where I realized I kind of unconsciously gleaned the spirit of Louisa, (laughs) even though Joe takes a different path. So Louisa, you know, never, never got married, never had kids, but she did write that book and she kept her copyrights. So that's the thing that you know without knowing you know. And in any case, it felt like the right way to address all of these multiplicity of of authors and this kind of complexity of, of what is the thing that happened and how are you receiving it was to create something that was kind of cubist in nature and explode the narrative and put it back together. I don't know what anyone really thought I was doing with it. <laughs> um, I, think they, I think they kind of knew. And definitely Amy Pascal knew and my actors knew. But I think there was a bit of... Um, some shock when i <laughs> when I unveiled what it actually was, i I always had the timeline re- structure the way I did. and i everything was there. But I think, um, just how clearly it becomes like a nesting doll of narrative, I don't think was totally obvious until I showed the f- first cut.
1: <laughs> I mean, when you started this, like, I think it's easy to receive this as a natural period prestige film from an oscar nominated director that's like the next uh, the next move in a big career but you started this when you started this project you weren't even really a filmmaker uh, as far as anyone that you were trying to convince you were a filmmaker was concerned
0: that's right <laughs> yeah no i was um well i had written lady bird but i hadn't directed it and so i When I talked myself into Amy Pascal's office, I had no credentials at all,
1: really. And the reason that you wanted to be there was specifically because you had, like, just heard, somebody is thinking of making Little Women. It's got to be me.
0: Yeah. No, I I had heard... um, sort of secondarily through my agent who was talking about something else. And then I had just reread little women and I had this idea for how I wanted to do it. But I, but because as of yet, I hadn't written and directed something solo. I had no, I didn't then go figure out how to put that in motion, but then I heard they were you know, thinking of doing it because it'd been 25 years or 20 years at that point. But, um, and so I, I talked myself in and I, and I, I and initially they were all, they only said, write it. They didn't say, (laughs) kid, (laughs) go, you can direct this. That came later. But um, they did say that I could write it. And I I have to say that that's, um, it's always hard to be the first people in the pool. You know, I'm I'm very grateful that they gave me that opportunity. So then I wrote I would say three or four drafts of this script, and then I went away and directed Lady Bird. And then by the time Lady Bird was out in the world, then they came back and said, would you like to direct Little Women? So it was a bit of leapfrogging. It wasn't like, ah, now I've done this, now I shall expand. It was, uh, the way it unfolded was slightly different. But I'm glad it it unfolded the way it did because it, it was a big undertaking with a lot of scope and I don't think I would have I don't know that I would have been able to I mean I certainly know it would be a different movie maybe it would be better we'll never know but
1: But did you go in there and say you know how you're making this movie that necessarily will cost at least tens of millions of dollars just because of the amount of money you have to buy you have to spend on petticoats or whatever right i'm thinking cubist with this (laughs) (laughs) like was that part was was this structure was taking apart all these pieces to get at the themes Mm. um uh, all the narrative pieces to get at the themes was that part of what you talked to them about
0: Yes, I did talk to them about this when I initially went in to talk to them about writing it. I would say the thing I leaned on more heavily when I was describing it was this sense of um, I wanted to both deliver on the pleasures of little women that we we know collectively. And and it's it's two things. It's the pleasures from the book. But it's also the pleasures of all the adaptations, like the sense of it's been interpreted. So it's gone into the collective consciousness. So I want to make sure, you know, we got to have Marmee and the girls piled together reading that letter from father, because we know that image, we have to see it. And also, we need to subvert it, because I can't make, you know, this is how this is my idea. So, but I was like, definitely, it will be a little, we will see all the things we love. Um, But then I'm going to do this other thing. But I think in some ways because I was not hired to direct it at that point and even though I really wanted to direct it I think I had a lot of freedom in my writing because part of me thought no one's ever going to let me do this like they'll never this will never come to be which is I think a good state to be in when you're writing because it it makes you not worry at all about people saying yes if you just assume no one's going to say yes so you can do what you want and that's how i wrote it so um but i think if i had had a in a way maybe if i'd known i would have i would have done something quote unquote safer
1: i think there is also a pleasure that is promised by the film's title that is delivered in the movie which mm. is purely aesthetic mm. like when you're making a period film part of what you are typically offering Mm. is a rich aesthetic experience that is like you know there there are period films where part of it is about how miserable the past was which it (laughs) mostly was as far as I can tell but like generally you know you want to look at beautiful I want to look at beautiful dresses and quilts yeah sure and Yes. Fireplaces. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I, it's true. I actually did an interview yesterday with Der Spiegel. And mm-hmm. um, just the, the journalist who interviewed me was wonderful. And, you know, I often find people who, for whom English is the second language, they just use the exact right word. But she said something that I was like, oh, that's, that's great. And I'm going to steal it from you. She said something about the abundance. In the movie, and that was exactly what we were going for—like this abundance of dresses and food and locations and love and emotion—that it kind of is overflowing. And I think, you know, I—I I mean, with the movie, one of the reasons I wanted to shoot on film, which we did, was was to answer that thing of what you want when you sit in a, a film that you know is going to be period film. I didn't want it to feel. Um, Nailed to the floor. I didn't want it to feel heavy, but I did want it to be deeply pleasurable and overflowing. So it was kind of finding this lightness, um, but this fullness of the world. And that was the, what, with my incredible costume designer, Jacqueline Duran, and Jess Goncher, who did my sets, and York Lassow, who was my um, DOP, creating that kind of, um, that bigness and then also the ability to move through it with something like a pizzicato feeling.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is something that impressed me a lot about the movie, which is when you get this kind of richness... Abundance Mm. to borrow Der Spiegel's
0: Der Spiegel. (laughs) Shout
1: out to Der Spiegel (laughs) and all our friends in Europe. Um, but did Le Monde have anything to say about this at all?
0: I don't know. I, I didn't, (laughs) I I, I don't know. I mean, I should check. (laughs)
1: Um, but like with that abundance often comes a formality and stiffness, right? And it feels like you were making choices at every turn to avoid the formality and stiffness, which is particularly interesting because the script, like the language in the film, is not only representative of the time, but often literally drawn from the book or from other Mm -hmm. writings and stuff.
0: That's right. Yeah. um, A lot of the language is verbatim from the book and or from her letters or other books, I wanted to as much as I could treat the text like something sacred that we don't we don't unnecessarily mess with. And that, you know, I've had the privilege of seeing a lot of really wonderful productions of Shakespeare. And There are times when you listen to it and it's just it flies off the stage like you can't believe how modern it sounds. And suddenly you understand it it like it clicks. It's like a light goes off. And and then when you see, you know, maybe a not so great production, you're like, I literally have no idea what they're talking about. I don't know what's happening. Um, And I, I felt like when I was looking at this text and this book. So many of the lines I just thought were so modern and unbelievable that I I wanted to hear them sort of in a in a way that felt electrifying. And then other lines are so famous and are written you know embroidered onto pillows and and every you know women from so many generation know them. So I wanted the girls to move through them with this speed and alacrity, which was was the excitement of life of being a teenager, of of being the first person in the world to say these words. And I think that that was was how, in a funny way, i I wanted to find the what was modern and fresh and alive about it by not altering it, where I didn't need to. It was almost um by being classical about it, I was able to find what was what was new because it's eternal.
1: I feel like you having broken the timeline into pieces and mm-hmm. mixed everything together de-emphasizes the grand sweep of story. Right. Um, it felt to me like it emphasized the feelings and themes in the like moments. You know what I mean? In a it like the the both the like overarching themes and the feelings of Of seconds, right? And I wonder if that was part of your goal in breaking it up that way.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, there are a few plot things about Little Women that you know you must hit, which I, you know, did in in the kind of when it goes in one direction of like Beth's illness two times. She gets sick. She gets better. She gets sick, and. Doesn't um, the rejection of Lori, you know, where they go? Actually, in the book, the first 10 chapters have no underlying plot. They're all episodic. They're episodes from their childhood. And then it isn't until chapter 11 when this kind of undertow of a plot starts to kick in. And part of that has to do with speaking back to you were saying they were trying to figure out the form of the novel is Louisa wrote the first 10 chapters, sent them to the publisher and said, I don't know. I don't think these are good, which I took and put in the movie. And then he was like, no, no, no. uh, His nieces read them at first he he didn't think it was very good either and then his nieces read them and it was like they were like what ah, this is this is great like i want more of this so then he said okay keep writing and then she you can see the plot kick in or like the bigger plot that's going to be the plot of the book and that's that that um kind of undertow starts happening but what i thought was I mean the difficulty is and this is why and I feel like every answer I have is so long and complex but that's how I feel about this text because it's satisfyingly obviously constructed like you can see the hand of the author you can see where she was like okay I've got 10 chapters which are episodic now I'm going to start doing the plot and then because it was published in two parts the you know the first part is 1861 to 1862, Christmas to Christmas. And then the second half of the book is skips many years, which is where I start in my narrative and go back to that first part. And then you can see her being like, I have to marry (laughs) Joe. So I'm going to invent this semi-awful German man (laughs) to have her marry. But um, I like, you know, unlike certain works of art, which feel like they're utterly seamless, I mean there's some novels that feel like that when you read it they feel like they were kind of delivered whole. Little Women's not and I I like that sense of seams which is another reason why I was able to sort of explode it and put it back together and feel good about that. Um but uh that that sense of 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 this episodes and then it, the plot Undertows. I think sometimes when you try to make a, a you know, a, another thing out of it, whether it's a movie or something else, that the plot to hang your hat on is the marriage plot. That's the one. That's the thing that you can say. Well, as long as we know that the marriage plot is going on, then we can let these girls fall in the ice and stuff. And so, what I wanted to do with the kind of putting the publisher scene up front, and he says. If there's a, you know, the the main character is a girl, I want her married or dead by the end. It kind of allows me to call attention to the fact that we're going to do the marriage plot as a device. But then what actually is happening is that these episodic moments of childhood become this rush of um, almost Proustian memories that then she's reconstructing. That's all to say, yes, the plot is tricky, uh, in this but yeah I think sometimes what what you end up doing is you want it you want to Jane Austenify it and make it just the marriage plot and that feels like not why girls love it
1: we'll finish up with Greta Gerwig when we come back from a quick break stay with us it's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR what does it take to start something from nothing and what does it take to actually build it I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This, listen now. Hey, J. Keith. Hey, Helen. I hear you have a true-false quiz you want me to finish. I do. Here we begin. We host a trivia game show podcast on the Max Fun Network called... Go fact yourself. True. Correct. The show is all about celebrity guests answering trivia questions about things Jake Heath enjoys. False. We sometimes don't talk about baseball or cats. Thank God. It's questions about things they enjoy. Next, we bring on surprise experts every episode. True. Correct. Final question. It's just the two of us sitting alone with these guests. False. Correct. We have a live audience at the Angel City Brewery. See? You can hear Go Fact Yourself every first and third Friday of the month. And if you don't listen, you can go fact yourself. True. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Greta Gerwig. She is, of course, the writer and director behind the great films Lady Bird and Little Women. Little Women is up for six Academy Awards this year, including Best Picture, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, She should have been up for Best Director. Let's get back into our conversation. So you have Meryl Streep in your movie. I'm going to play uh, a Meryl Streep scene. Sure. Um, (laughs) Meryl Streep, for people who don't know, is the best actor. Um,
0: (laughs) If you've been living under
1: a rock. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Meryl Streep is Joe's aunt, and she is independently wealthy Mm. um, and lives by herself, and her, you know, She seems to spend some of her time uh, not being sure what to do with herself and some of her time uh, getting into fights with Joe that she seems to get a kick out of. Yeah. They both seem to get a kick out of. They like it. Yeah. So anyway, this is uh, the two of them together. Is there a reason you stopped reading Belsham? I'm sorry. I'll continue. You mind yourself, dearie. Someday
0: you'll need me and you'll wish you had behaved better.
1: Thank you, Aunt March, for your employment and your many kindnesses, but I intend to make my own way in the world.
0: Oh, well. No, no one makes their own way. Not really. Least
1: of all, a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, Aunt March. Well, that's because I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> There's just a couple of Barrel Street scenes. Mm hmm. I understand that she inserted herself into the film on the basis of having the same kinds of strong feelings about Little Women that you have. That's right. Um, when you uh, have Meryl Streep in your movie in a supporting role, uh, how do you uh, make a movie that is not a Meryl Streep movie?
0: <laughs> I know it's really hard. No, I mean, I mean she's the greatest actress. Of all time, perhaps, because um, she is never not a star, but she can also serve exactly what you need in the moment. So, you know, it was exactly the right amount of Aunt March. It was what she needed to be um, for the movie, and it's completely impactful. And it was funny, actually, the first time I watched um you know, I, I work, when I edit, I edit straight through. I start, I, I sit down. I was in the editing room the day after shooting and you sit down and I say, all right, put up, let's see that first image. Let's start cutting from the beginning and then you cut all the way through and you, and I don't really go back. Um, And then and then I go back and then I refine. Anyway, the first time I watched it all the way through, she's a huge impact in the movie in a very economical amount of space, which is why she's, the greatest.
1: It's like she comes in and, you know, hits an oil drum with a baseball bat. That's yeah. what it feels like. Like yeah. it leaves a dent.
0: No, she's um she's definitely the the designated hitter. She's <laughs> she's not she doesn't need to field. She's just coming in and blocking that over right. the green monster. Um
1: really good extended metaphor.
0: I uh, thank you. But she yeah. You know, she she loved the book. She had a, a very strong feeling about it. She knew we were working on it. She said she wanted to be Aunt March. Um, and she was f- very helpful to me as a mind to bounce stuff off of because I would... I met with her. I, we, we had lunch and, and we talked about the book and we talked about women and we talked about what it should be. And she's so smart. I mean, she's just so smart. And some of the things she said, I just stole directly and put in the movie. I, I will say as a writer, having great actors is um, the thing you, you can never give them enough credit for a thing working because they clarify they clarify what you're trying to do for yourself,
1: Every actor in the film, including, like, Timothy Chalamet, whose character is a a little bit of a dissolute dope for much (laughs) of the film, um, all of the film. But, like, every character, the the quality that I would say they all share, every one of the performers, is incredible warmth. Mm. And... I wonder if you chose these people. I mean, I guess maybe Bob Odenkirk wouldn't be the first person I thought of for that. Um
0: uh interestingly, it was the first person I thought of <laughs>
1: You were you were just thinking of that teaching by billiards sketch from Mr. Show. Yeah, exactly.
0: No, I mean I always knew I wanted someone who who was like um, had something comedic deeply Sorry, in them. That, thinking about that teaching oh my God. by billiards. He's I amazing. Just thought
1: about <laughs> Mr. Fast Horse, not like his name at all. Real slow-leg. <laughs> no,
0: he's, he's incredible. And I, But I always knew I wanted someone like that for Father because I wanted it to be that thing when Father comes home, I wanted it to be like, oh, your dad is Bob Odenkirk? Of course you miss him. And also, it allowed me to do the thing that I always inherently felt with Mr. March, which is that he is in that Jane Austen way of being one of those fathers that's like a little checked out about the proceedings of the goings-on in his own house, but also likes his daughters a lot, but also is kind of, you know, when he checks in, it's a bit like oh, you've missed the entire plot. But it's slightly, um, its yeah, it's slightly comedic. And I always, I just, I thought he would be perfect. It just made me so happy every time I thought about
1: it. I, I mean, but I mean, like Chris Cooper, you could hardly find a warmer, sad oh. actor than Chris Cooper in the history of the world. Uh, Laura Dern, mm-hmm. like all, when you look at Laura Dern on screen, all you want in the world is for her to just like put your put her arm around your shoulder and like, Nod and smile a little. I know. <laughs> and, you know, I you know, I know what I mean? <laughs> I know. But it all it all reinforces that feeling of home and hearth, that like pile of girls reading the letter feeling. Right. That is so essential to the film.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's funny. I never thought about it as there's no real antagonist until people started bringing that up to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, there are. Right, there isn't. I guess for me I don't know with all movies but but particularly with this story it felt like the thing was I wanted people to want to crawl inside the screen and live there with these people. And um I don't know all directors are all different but for me like I need to love my actors. Like I need to feel like I I mean because I'm spending all this time with them too. And so um I I pick people that I love and then I um I hope hopefully shoot them lovingly and then, then everybody gets a big warm feeling. Um I, I mean it's not the only thing I'm interested in, but um certainly with this story it was a big part of
1: it. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Greta Gerwig. So as you mentioned, the structure of the film and the structure of Little Women hangs on the question of marriage. Yes. And you set that up right right up top.
0: Yeah, married or dead.
1: Yeah, married or dead. Do you intend the story in your film to end ambiguously in terms of marriage?
0: I do the end of the book on the one hand, and then I do the end of life on the other hand. I always find that question, actually, uh, sometimes I'm asked, you know, in Q&As, they were like, but what really happened? And I'm like, this is all fiction. (laughs) I don't even know what the ontological reality of that question is in terms of, um, you know, I I mean, I definitely had an idea behind it of real and fiction, but the fiction is just as real as the real because it's all constructed anyway. But, you know, maybe it's my, like, Christopher nolan *Spinning Top* at the end it's like, was it a dream? I don't know.
1: <laughs> Greta Gerwig, uh, I have so loved both of your movies, and I'm so grateful that you came back here to uh, to talk about this one. It's a real—it's a real achievement. And um, thank you. It's really something.
0: Thank you. It was so fun to talk again.
1: Greta Gerwig, *Little Women* is so great. You have to go see it. It's still in theaters. Uh, It's also nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Supporting Actress, Best Actress, Best Adapted Screenplay, and Best Picture. Will it win? You can find out Sunday, February 9th on ABC on a television show called The Oscars. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is produced at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking macarthur park in beautiful los angeles california where the city of los angeles is planting some new plants and they appear to be mostly native so hey shout out to the city of la and while we're at it shout out to the county of la they do good work too the show is produced by speaking into microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesús Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows are Jordan Cowling and Melissa Dueñas. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by the band The Go team. Our thanks to them and to Memphis Industries, their label for letting us use it. And one last thing, we have decades of interviews on this show. We've had three very different conversations with Greta Gerwig. Why not uh, go back and listen to uh, my conversation with her about Lady Bird or go back a little further and listen to my conversation with her about her acting career? Uh, She is a cool lady. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. Uh, You can find it on any of those platforms. Uh, All the interviews on this show and all of our interviews from the past few years are on YouTube if you want to go browse around our YouTube channel. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with
0: Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.